Thanks for joining us today for the PSU's Pandemic Podcast. My name is Sarah Siddiqui. I'm a Supported Return to Training Fellow based in the Professional Support Unit in London. In these podcasts, we'll be covering different themes around training and supervision, career concerns, well-being and difficult communications during the pandemic. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PSU's Pandemic Podcast on human factors in the clinical workplace. There is a lot of confusion in the healthcare community about what human factors training is. I realise effective communication is key. I clearly remember before the training we had no structure or understanding to what was planned. Taking the time to give people tools and confidence. Repeat back is essential. It reconfirms vital information and makes everyone else in the lab aware of that particular piece of information, giving a chance for anyone to speak up. Since the training, we now have a morning briefing and team members are encouraged to speak up, ask questions or raise any concern. It's about developing an understanding of how to design safer systems in healthcare. And without adequate training in human factors, we wouldn't make any progress here. Today's episode is on human factors in healthcare. And with us, we have Ruth Anna McQueen, who's an Obsangaini trainee doing an MSc in human factors. Hiya. Yeah. Peter Brennan, who's a consultant maxillofacial surgeon and honorary chair from Portsmouth University. Hello, good afternoon. Joe Schramm, who's a consultant in respiratory medicine at the Brompton Hospital and a deputy dean at HEE. Hi, everyone. And we have Graham Shaw, founder and director of Critical Factors, which is a skill sharing consultancy currently running human factors projects in healthcare. And he's also a 777 British Airways captain. Hello, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us. As a surgical trainee and fellow, I have heard of human factors, but I have to admit I'm a complete novice when it comes to what they actually mean. I know that they're principles which the Air Force industry or the military use, but I know that they're becoming more and more popular when it comes to designing healthcare systems. My question is to Graham. How would you define human factors? Well, human factors is a very broad term and it it encompasses everything from system level design to equipment that's being built and how that equipment will interface with with people. Then it goes on to how we as individuals perform, both in terms of physiological needs, but also how we interact with the world. But then probably most importantly and most relevant is that these days we all work in teams as professionals, especially in healthcare. So how we interact with other people in our, our roles is really where our human factors come in. And that's the area we're most involved with. And I think it's really important that they're perceived not just as a kind of standalone item, but they're an integral part of the total skill set that any professional has. Joe, would you like to add? I think the clue's in the name, really. It's about being a human. And being a human is a really challenging existence. We do it completely unconsciously. As a child and an adult, we exist. And it's only when we start thinking consciously about how we exist in our environment and what processes and systems and the culture around us, how that affects what we do and how we interact with our surroundings. That's when human factors becomes a very interesting part of our time on this planet to study. And I think it's been really helpful to 
bring it into sharp relief in healthcare. I'm sure Peter will probably have more to say about that. I think your definition, Graham, is absolutely superb. Uh, I mean, for me, I think, Joe, what you said about humans, we make about five to seven mistakes every single day, whether that be forgetting to put the washing machine on or what have you. So it's actually putting things into place, recognising that we make mistakes and minimising error as best we can. We can never completely eliminate it, of course. Ruthanna? We can all get quite hung up on the terminology. And essentially, the best way that I have of explaining it to people is just making the right thing to do the easy thing to do. And I think that's a way that when you say that to people, it can get away from some of the idea that this is something where you have to just go and learn lots of long words for things. Um, and actually, the, the concepts are actually, I think, very familiar to people. But until you actually start talking about them, we don't necessarily acknowledge them in medicine, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to expand on that because I think as, you know, medics especially, but also pilots, let's face it, we love to have a little bit of terminology, a bit of jargon. And whilst that can serve at an academic level to just to really understand what we're talking about with human factors, it can also be really off-putting as practitioners, especially when you're learning. You know, a, a classic example might be, say, different mental biases or something like that, where to some extent it really doesn't matter on the day when you're trying to carry out your role, what the name of the bias is that you might be susceptible to. It's just recognising that actually there's a flaw in the thinking and stepping back from that problem and looking at things in a different way uh, or using some tools to help is really where it comes in. You know, a point was raised about that education, I think, at one point. And actually, when we tend to learn new roles, especially as we're progressing in our careers, we, we really focus on technical skills, how we're going to learn a procedure or a technique or, or some new bit of science or something like that. But actually, when you bring that into the day-to-day -day role, it's the non-technical skills, it's the human factors that are so important in terms of how we carry out that role on a day-to-day -day basis, having done that initial bit of learning that is so important. And that's why, especially for trainees who are thinking about this, you know, of course, all the desire at the outset is to become technically proficient. But that's why you can't really view human factors anymore as a sort of standalone thing that you can pick up it's an integral part of, of how anyone operates. I'm going to go back to what Joe said about cultures and environments. And basically in, in healthcare, we do have a culture and it's very apparent in all of the different settings and environments. So how do you think they're relevant to the kind of medical or healthcare culture? That's um, a huge question, Sarah. Uh, we are social beings as humans and so we learn very early on that we have to interact with other humans in order to survive and then thrive in our environments and that becomes ever more important when we enter the world of work. Healthcare is an incredibly complex culture. It's full of very driven individuals. They're motivated by a number of very high level factors such as doing good, benefiting society, being professional, but also full of lots of um, very intellectual and academic pursuits as well. So you've got a very fertile breeding ground of different types of personalities and role models. And then we have the complexity of teams, which Graham has mentioned, but teams aren't fixed. We don't work with the same people each day 
in the same roles. We're constantly having to flex around how we do that. So we're constantly having to form our teams and make sure that they work well together and maintaining teams. And then you have the wider culture of how our healthcare system is perceived in society. Currently, we're in a particular epoch of culture where, you know, we're seen in a very heroic way. And that has lots of advantages, but huge challenges for us all to respond to that. I think there's so much to unpick there. How does human factors fit into that? Well, we have to go to work. We all want to do a great job at work. Sometimes things don't go to plan. We make mistakes, as Peter's mentioned. How do we minimise the mistakes and minimise the impact of things that might go wrong? That's, I think, probably where I would start that conversation. I can see Peter's ready to help me now. So that's good news. Uh, Yeah, I mean, hierarchy is a really big issue even now. And there's hierarchy in surgery that still exists. hierarchy in other medical disciplines and I think even hierarchy between medicine and nurses and allied healthcare professionals and what's really important for me and uh, part of my PhD thesis on human factors really was actually getting down to the nitty-gritty of hierarchy and addressing the factors really that we can do to to minimize it so you know when we go to work as you mentioned Joe the very first thing if we have a brief in the morning lower that hierarchy empower the juniors and as juniors empower your medical students empower the nurses empower everyone in the team to be able to speak up, to look out for you, to question what you're doing without fear of retribution or anything at all. And uh, that immediately uh, lowers hierarchy. And of course, it plugs into other factors, including situational awareness. I'd just like to expand on both those points that Joe and Peter made. Ultimately, aviation is a, a field where teams are typically formed for perhaps a day or a trip. So regularly combining new members of teams is common. And trying to remove hierarchy is something that has been very much culturally promoted by the institutions, by the airlines. But I think ultimately it does fall on leaders at the beginning or leaders of teams at the beginning of a day to set a tone. That's so important. We've witnessed over the years some some very interesting experiences in healthcare where we've seen how authority gradient does persist and behaviours that would probably not, would certainly stand out quite significantly in aviation, are still lingering in parts. And that's not to say we haven't seen some fantastic examples the other way, but it's clearly a much wider spectrum within healthcare. And I think if leaders recognise more the impact that they can have by setting the tone at the beginning of the day, and also if people understood maybe their own personal responsibility on the other side to push against, you know, if they see a leadership characteristic that they're not comfortable with, to understand that they too have a responsibility of caring for the patient. Ultimately, leaders need to understand that teams are there to support them. And teams are also maybe need to recognise that they share responsibility. It's They may not see it directly in that it's their patient, but they need to have in mind that it's their patient too, because every member of a team on an aeroplane understands it's in their way, it's their aeroplane too, and they need to take responsibility for the safety of it. You've really summarised that quite well. I mean, I agree in healthcare, it does exist. You've already mentioned setting the tone. Peter, in terms of your supervision as that leader, you'd be sort of higher up in the hierarchy. And then Ruthanna, how has your knowledge of human factors helped you to recognise that hierarchy and to push back? Have you any examples of situations like that? Firstly, just to say we've written an article published last July in the BMJ, which I'd refer everyone to read. It's a very, very simple overview about hierarchy and ways to reduce it. 
um, I've come from a very humble background. My parents weren't educated. You know, I've really had to work really hard to get to where I am. I kind of look back through the journey and think, how on earth did I make it? So I'm very much one of the group, if you like, don't see myself as being on a pedestal. I see myself as just a normal person. And so I'll speak to the healthcare support worker the same as I would the chief executive. And I think respect is actually earned. And yes, there is a certain amount of respect for Graham for being the captain of the 777 or for you, Joe, as the deputy dean. But, you know, that respect is actually earned. And you kind of build respect from people just by lowering that hierarchy and coming down to their level. I just pick up on Peter's point about earning respect and also taking the opportunity as a leader to make sure that we treat people as we would each want to be treated and whatever our role is. I think it's also really important to be mindful of how we are seen by others. However much we try to be friendly and personable and take an interest, there will always be a perception that one might hold power and we can never flatten that hierarchy enough, I don't think, as a leader. I think the more that we do that and that we take responsibility for that and also speak about it. So when we are challenged by a complex decision or that there's a critical pressure point to acknowledge that to the people around us that makes a huge difference to that hierarchy and that authority gradient thanks joe yeah it's really interesting i'm um, nodding furiously along with lots of what everyone said in fact peter i was just about to say exactly the same thing that i feel quite strongly that respect is earned but i also feel that having that position uh, in medicine is quite a controversial thing to have particularly this side of the cct I also think it's quite important to separate out respect for people's clinical experience, which is undoubtedly greater the longer you've been doing the job, and respect for people's behaviour and leadership skills. And I think you can have great respect for someone's ability in the field that they're practising in, whilst having quite strong differences of opinion about their leadership styles or the way that they conduct themselves in certain situations. And I think that can be something that is quite tricky to navigate, particularly as a trainee. I'm ST6 now in Obstangani, and so I find myself flipping between roles, really, where certainly out of hours, I'm definitely seen as a team leader. And I will be with the midwifery coordinator running the labour ward and expected to be making decisions and managing the team, making both clinical and leadership decisions and very quickly under pressure. But maybe during more of the daytime hours, I would be expected to be more deferential or defer to the consultant's opinion, even if I might disagree with it. And I think that is quite a difficult tightrope to walk, particularly as you get higher up in the training programme. And I'm someone who's taken a quite convoluted route through my training working less than full time and having had three children and then um, some time out working for HSIB. One of the things that's drawn me to human factors is almost as a way of evidencing what I feel is quite self-explanatory, but sometimes it's easier to challenge some of that authority uh, or bad behaviour if you're evidence-based. So if you can say to people, um, you know, here is the evidence that hierarchy is bad for clinical care or that the way that we speak each other actually has direct impacts on the outcomes for our patients. So a lot of the good work that's been done by the Civility Saves Lives campaign is doing just that. And sometimes I think as medics, we get quite hung up on evidence and logic and things like that. So actually, it can be quite a good way to tackle it, I think, rather than just saying, oh, I don't like the way you do that. You can actually come up with a reason to explain why you don't like the way that someone's doing that. As a trainee, I can certainly agree with what you've said. I've been in those situations before where I've struggled to find the words to 
differentiate between respect for someone between their clinical knowledge, but also maybe a concern about their leadership skills? People often move forward, they progress in their careers probably uh, more so in healthcare than, than in aviation because of their pure technical skills. They haven't necessarily had leadership skill training in the way that we would have fostered within an aviation world. You know, there is a difference between leading a team, motivating a group of individuals, understanding the, the, the whole you know, responsibility that goes with it, as opposed to being an expert technically in a field of medicine. And I'm not overly qualified to comment on that, but it's a casual observation from what I've seen and anecdotally. Certainly, because they're equally going on to one of Ruth Anna's points about evidence basis, that we are attuned in the aviation world to certain language to, to refer to behaviours. And so we don't necessarily need the quantitative analysis to, to use as evidence, as opposed to pick up on behavioural traits that are easily observable. And, and certainly at the end of the day, when we debrief, it's very easy for us to pick up and say, Do you know, I'd like to just refer back to this moment where... I experienced this and the consequence of it was, or even might have been, it may have been an event that never took place, but you want to address behaviours early to point out whether they're positive or negative markers. And I think generally, the interesting thing I sometimes get people to look at is most people can identify individuals who help them on their journey, people who they can't necessarily explain why, but they, they've admired and respected and gravitated towards and, and in a way that they aspire to be and they're their role models. And generally, those individuals, the thing that's missing for them is, is the language to explain why it was they could go into a room and light it up. Actually, very rarely are those people individuals with exceptional technical skills, but poor behavioural skills. There are a few, let's face it, and equally some people maybe get on the false impression that that's what they should be. That's what, you know, they should be very assertive, they should be very confident, they should focus purely on the technical. Because people who are of that disposition often see that as a strong characteristic to role model in, in others. So I think it's just really important to understand the behaviours that really we should be recognising as positive behaviours and getting people to focus on those and develop those, as well as identifying you know, certain behaviours that maybe really aren't that helpful. Peter? We take the technical skills or the surgical ability or whatever, that is the professionalism of things and all, all these other things we're talking about, that really is the non-technical skills, isn't it? Leadership, how we interact with people, the civility, all of that. That is what human factors for me is all about, really. And and uh, you can be the best surgeon in the world. And in fact, let me ask you a question. Would you like to to go to the best surgeon in the world who's technically brilliant, but actually treats you like a piece of dirt? Or would you like to go to the worst surgeon in the world who's the loveliest uh, chap or lady in the world? What you'd probably want is you want to go somewhere in the middle where they're technically competent, but they're also a nice person and they treat you as a patient and your team with respect. I would certainly agree with that. I think from my experience as a trainee, it's really important to have someone who can give you skills, but also part of learning is being able to question. And if you are with someone who you can't question for fear of authority, then you're not really learning effectively, in my view. But I'm going to ask Joe to follow on from that. Yeah, I was just thinking and reflecting on what Peter's just said, because I love that question, which do you want? The answer is somewhere in the middle. There's also the concept of being uh, good enough. 
at something. So I'm happy to get in an aeroplane with someone flying it who I know is able to land it and uh, safely and effectively. And equally, I'd be happy to have an operation done by someone who I know is good enough at it. It doesn't have to be the best person. And we know there are data to suggest that outcomes are impacted by human factors so that it's not purely about technical skill because medical practice whether it's medical in the terms of being a physician or a GP and also surgical and craft specialty type of work is all team sport there's no one that works in a hermetically sealed container with no other requirement for any other humans to do anything that's just not possible and really the reality is that things are much more complex than that and we have to consider that that someone who is technically good but also able to work within their team and their environment is absolutely critical that's very powerful i think at the moment we're all working in different circumstances to normal due to this unique period and the current crisis with the pandemic and I think what all of you've said really resonates with this current situation where actually we are working in an environment where leadership and followership and flattening the hierarchy is important because everyone's working in slightly different teams and everyone is redeployed to somewhere they're not maybe the expert of that area and Graham you mentioned in the airline industry you're working with different teams all the time where you may not know who the team is, um, you may not have worked with them before or know their preferences in terms of working styles. So how do you think healthcare organisations should implement human factors when designing these systems in the pandemic response period? I don't think there should be any difference per se between being in a pandemic period and any other period. I think the truth is, you know, it, it has to be part of recognition that this is just a broad skill set that we must always be mindful of. So I think we should very much keep that in mind. Secondly, I, I think everyone should always ultimately have the patient at the centre of everything. In the same way, you know, when we form a new team, it's just implicit in, in aviation that the safety of the aircraft is all where it begins. So everything has to centre around the needs of the patient. Then I think the obvious difference that the pandemic has brought is that, yes, you have different skills, different unfamiliar teams being pulled together. So we in aviation have standardised procedures, which is the starting point of everything. To the extent you can do that in healthcare, that's hugely helpful because then there's a common understanding. But that can be challenging if you're trying to do things under a time pressure. I think the other area that seems to be quite significant is PPE. There is certainly communication issues. There is hearing problems you can't hear. I did a 10-hour case about two or three weeks ago, and it was absolutely exhausting. I would strongly recommend, uh, as I always do, every three hours or so, you walk away, you take a break, you have something to drink, you have a comfort stop, you have something to eat. That's absolutely critical so that you're optimised at all times. But on many occasions, you know, I spoke to the anaesthetist, the anaesthetist didn't hear me. And so, again, some, some of the human factors then come into play about repeat back, raising your voice a little bit so so that they can hear or not yes it's a massive it's a massive issue and also the anxiety and the stress that we're all under at the moment with this pandemic make sure you have some time away from work and to look after yourself and to your family and friends that's so important Ruthanna lots of the things that have already been touched on by Joe and Peter about communication and how it impairs your communication not only with colleagues but particularly in maternity it's incredibly challenging to reassure somebody who's going through the most frightening experience of their life 
without the use of your face, essentially, just with your eyes and your voice, which is going to be slightly muffled. Um, And so communication with women and their partners has been something that I've really noticed has been a significant challenge um, with the PPE. And the other aspect of it is the time that it takes to put on in an emergency. So it's incredibly psychologically difficult to stand outside a room where you can hear a baby is getting incredibly distressed in utero and take the time that it takes to put the PPE on properly. Or a woman is bleeding out and you have to do what you need to do to be safe. And actually, yes, it's a practical skill, but it's also a significant psychological barrier to actually know that you could just dash into that room and save someone's life, but actually you need to do the right thing. Um, And we've practiced that actually with some of my junior trainees to actually go through these emotions. And it's like parent hearing your newborn cry or something like that and not being able to do anything about it. So I think that side of PPE is maybe something that hasn't been as much discussed, but it's certainly really significant. And a friend of mine worked extensively for MSF in the Ebola crisis. um, And he always says there's no such thing as an emergency in a pandemic um, and you have to really work hard I think much more so than usual to mentally keep yourself calm and work through things in a very systematic organized way and not panic which obviously makes then everything worse and the more in in any kind of specialty but I think particularly maybe so in in mine it's very much being a swan totally serene on the surface and, and flapping around underneath and certainly how you as a person who's leading the team behave Um, will have a humongous impact both on colleagues but also again on the woman and her partner who are going through something that they're going to inevitably remember for the rest of their lives. Thanks Ruthanna that's a very graphic example. Graham? Firstly I mean listening to it it's clear that there's a lot of emotional behaviour that's wrapped up in all this and whilst human factors does encompass that there are clearly some deeper needs than the maybe conventional human factor discussions have brought up. And I think that's really important to recognise. Some of this borders on PTSD, on counselling, and also just on resilience and how to have strategies to cope. Keeping cool and calm as a leader is so important. Thankfully, we normally only see this in aviation and simulator training and stuff like that. But it's, it's so important there to find even minuscule periods of time to calm yourself down before launching in. You know, we've learned very much about the trouble often where, you know, you're startled and your your immediate response, your, your instinct to do something may actually be detrimental to the situation, if not in this case to your own situation. I was just thinking a little bit about your previous question. One thing I would say is that actually the crisis situation not aided perhaps by PPE. One thing that I find is a really valuable tool at any point really is where you have just that moment you can zone out for a moment to take a look around and understand the situation that you're in and make sure that you feel you are keeping up. Peter mentioned about long procedures and the need to take breaks but even just mini breaks just for a few seconds to step back and think do I actually know what's going on here you know am I safe is my patient safe where are my colleagues at can be hugely valuable typically we'd encourage people then to maybe have a huddle if there's been any breakdown just so that everybody can come together and share what they think is going on and what the state of the patient is but I think that the focus has shifted slightly as a result of the crisis. 
I'd just like to follow that point through a little bit further around stopping to think, which is a really important aspect of human factors that we emphasise in our training programme that we run at our trust, which is the fact that thinking and doing at the same time is not a good plan any more than anyone can actually multitask whatever your gender is it's far better to have someone doing things while you stop and think but what you have to do then is ensure that everybody in your system understands that that behavior is normal and that you're not standing there looking around because you don't know what to do or that you're panicking because otherwise someone else is going to leap in and start doing things or start barking around orders so that's a really important concept the idea that you normalize someone standing and looking around and thinking through what the consequences would be of one particular action or another to aid decision making the other thing is we've gone quite dark about human factors but i'd just like to highlight some of the benefits of being aware of human factors and meaningfully discussing those in the current pandemic response. So a very good example is the fact that a huge number of surgical trainees and consultants are now working uh, on medical wards or um, supporting critical care. And I loved the story recently on Twitter about a very senior surgical consultant who on his name badge, he put a sticker over his title and put F1 in training because he had gone right back to a completely different part of the team away from his leadership and he was clearly signposting the fact that he was there to do and he had a particular role and he understood that his place in the system was no longer one of seniority and expertise. So I think that's been a really interesting part of what has happened and I think those traditional hierarchies and silos that we've worked in in specialties have really broken down over the last few weeks and I really hope that we can maintain some of that new culture. I hope we don't lose it all when things roll out of this acute phase. I was just going to say really something that my father always used to say and it was engage brain before opening mouth and that's always stuck with me for years and years and there's very few instances where you can just act you know you can stop and you can think and you can walk away and you can talk to others and even the famous Elaine Bromley episode that everyone knows about when the airway was lost if they had just spent five or ten seconds just thinking about what to do the outcome would have been totally different. I just wanted to follow on from what Joe said about the breakdown in silos I've certainly got to know both parts of my hospital and many, many uh, members of staff in the hospital that I'd never come across before COVID, actually both clinically and um, managers and operational teams that I, you know, working with estates and all kinds of things like that. And the other thing that I really hope that we can hang on to is the focus on well-being and psychological support and psychological well-being. So, you know, lots of trusts are built, well-being hubs and wobble rooms and things like that. And it's become a lot more acceptable to talk about mental well-being, you know, the importance of work-life balance. What are you doing to relax in the evening? How are you getting some exercise? Are you eating well? All of those things that we know we should be focusing on all the time. But I think they've all come to the fore a lot more. And I'd like that if we could retain the focus on all of that um, once this is over. Yeah, couldn't agree with that more. So finally, as we draw the episode to a close, what key concepts from human factors would you like listeners to take away with them today? My absolute favourite always is the concept of having a bucket 
So a bucket is your capacity, effectively. And when one is working from home and homeschooling three children, the bucket gets really full quite quickly. Um, So this is a really important visual metaphor to use, thinking about when you have to stop and you must stop before you burn out. And that's not burnout in big style. That's just having regular breaks, stopping and not thinking about your activity. And I think that, for me, keeps me just about in a place that allows me to work at my best. Graham? Firstly, just that everybody has responsibility ultimately for the patient. I know it sounds very cliche, but we've had countless examples where we've seen or heard of situations where people have lost sight of that. And and that helps people push against authority gradient or feel any reluctance ultimately to communicate. If they have a concern, they must push it forward. And just finally, you know, this isn't standalone human factor stuff. This is just part of your total professional skill set. I think that's really important to remember. Peter? This gets harder, doesn't it? It's like one of those courses that you go to and they ask you, what's your take-home messages? And depends which way they go around the audience. I think mine, seeing that Joe's already taken one of mine anyway, but mine would be put your own oxygen mask on before helping others. So looking after yourself before helping your patients. And what do I mean by that? I mean, taking the time. I mean, making sure you've had something to eat and drink, making sure you've had lunch, actually stopping, discussing with others, sharing burdens when something's not quite right or you need some help, sharing things and just optimizing your own performance so assuming you've done all of the above don't make assumptions whether that's assuming that the person you're working with knows where to find the cannulas or assuming that because they're a consultant they must know x y and z or whatever it is i think just being really explicit in communication is even more important than ever at the moment communication both clinically and in terms of expectations what you are expecting of people what they can expect of you And actually just being honest and a bit humble. As Joe said, if you're trying to homeschool three kids or got other things going on, I think lots of people have got poorly relatives and things like that at the moment. Lots of other things on your mind. I would just say, tell your team that. Be honest and open about where you're at mentally. You know, I say routinely to my SHOs and junior edges, I've had a bit of a rubbish night's sleep or this is going on with my grandma. If you see me doing something that looks really stupid, please tell me, you know, we're all in this together. That's such an important point, Ruth. And I think as uh, clinicians and other healthcare workers, we're so used to this idea of being stoic or showing that to our other team members or patients that we forget that actually it's important to be honest, particularly when the situation has so many consequences, if you're not. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for this panel discussion. It's been wonderful to have your input and I look forward to having discussions with you again, hopefully someday. follow-up episode where I'll be talking to a team at the Royal Brompton Harefield Hospital about their experience of human factors during this pandemic. Mm-hmm.